Section 10 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dykstra, Farragut, Iowa. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 9. Corvette did not sail so soon as Murray had at first intended, it being necessary to allow the captured slaves a longer time in harbor to recruit their exhausted strength, glad as all hands would have been to get them out of the ship. Poor wretches! Their unclean habits made them far from pleasant visitors. They were housed under awnings rigged over the deck, which it was necessary to wash down frequently with abundance of water. But even then, the sickly odor which pervaded the ship was not only unpleasant, but calculated to produce sickness among the crew. Notwithstanding this, the officers made themselves as happy as circumstances would allow. The midshipmen of the corvette invited those of the brig to a dinner on board, and Tom Rogers, with several companions, arrived at the appointed hour. Satisfactory enough to capture slavers, but I don't envy you fellows having to look after the poor slaves now that you've got them, observed Tom, as he glanced his eye over the long rows of Negroes seated on the deck, the men on one side, the women and young children on the other, all looking pictures of stolid misery and scarcely yet comprehending that they were free. All they could think of was that they had been torn from their homes and families and were to be carried to a strange land where they must of necessity toil hard to support themselves. They could not yet understand the real benefit they were to derive from the change, that, from henceforth, they would live in peace, able to enjoy the proceeds of their labor without any further expectation of tax from foes, and having their dwellings plundered and burned and themselves murdered, and, above all things, that they would be instructed in Christianity and civilization. Archie had been looking into the subject. You see, Tom, he observed, until the slave trade can be altogether abolished on shore, we do all we can to put a stop to it afloat. The atrocious Arabs are the cause of all the misery and suffering the slaves endure. It is impossible to return them to their homes. Indeed, in most instances, those homes have been utterly destroyed. But if they were not, the poor creatures would run the risk of being again captured so we do our best to place them in a far better position than they before enjoyed. And, though I'm afraid that a large number are carried into perpetual slavery, and that many more perish miserably, still, that's not our fault. You're right, answered Tom. I only wish that we had twenty times as many cruisers out in these seas as we have at present, and that it was lawful to hang up every skipper, if not the whole of the crews, of all the dows with slaves on board whom we could catch. If people in England knew all the horrors the poor Africans endure, which seem to me twice as bad as those of the West Coast traffic, I believe they would rise to a man and insist on its being put down at whatever cost. The rest of the midshipmen responded to Tom's generous sentiments, and the young ones, at all events, agreed that they should be ready to devote their lives to the service. A wind sail brought sufficient air down below to enable the midshipmen to sit with comparative comfort in their berth. Comparative, for the thermometer stood at not less than 85 degrees. But they were by this time well accustomed to heat, and endured it with stoical indifference. 
Archie and Desmond were especially eager to hear an account of Tom's adventure since they parted, and he, having no objection to spin a long yarn, was willing enough to recount them. I little thought, when Jack and I went out, that we should see so much service in a short time, he began. On our arrival in the Hooghly River, we found that an expedition had been dispatched to teach the King of Ava better manners than he had lately been exhibiting toward the British. You will understand that a large river, the Irrawaddy, flows from north to south through the country. It has several mouths. On the shores of one of them is situated the town of Rangoon, a biggish place with a good deal of trade. Higher up is Prome, while there is another place, Martaban, on the shore of the gulf of that name. Ava, the capital, where the king lives, is situated in the interior. The governor of Rangoon had been playing all sorts of tricks, imprisoning several merchant skippers and insulting and fining others. They laid their complaints before the authorities at Calcutta, who resolved to make the governor of Rangoon apologize and recompense the sufferers. We were, therefore, immediately ordered off to the Irrawaddy, as soon as we could get in a supply of fresh provisions and stores. We found the squadron, with a considerable number of troops on board, anchored off Rangoon. It is a pretty strong place, fortified by stockades with heavy batteries of guns. The Commodore had sent on shore to demand an apology of the Viceroy, and, as it was supposed he would at once give it, we had very little expectation of fighting. However, in the evening, instead of an apology, came a message, declaring that, if the British ships should attempt to pass the stockades erected along the banks of the river, they would be fired on. We had heard that a large number of troops, some said 5,000, were collected within the fortifications, and each of the boats which had been sent out reconnoitering brought word that, during the night and day, they had seen no end of war boats, full of men, coming down the Pegu River, evidently to assist in the defense of the place. Instructions were at once sent to the merchant vessels to get under way, and drop down out of the line of fire, while a steamer towed the Commodore's frigate within 400 yards of the stockade. Here she anchored to protect the merchant vessels as they dropped down. We had heard, meantime, of a large Burmese war vessel, of which one of our steamers was sent in search, while the company steamers proceeded up the river to meet a fleet of warboats, pouring in a tremendous fire on the stockades on their way. The warboats, in spite of their gay flags and the row their crews kicked up to frighten us barbarians, were speedily sunk or sent to the right about, while the batteries on shore, having soon had enough of it, ceased firing. In a short time, we saw our steamer, the Hermes, come puffing up with a huge Burmese war vessel which she had captured in tow. After this, we did nothing for some time except blockading the mouths of the river, completely putting a stop to the enemy's trade. It was thought by this that the King of Ava would knock under, but he held out, till at length Admiral Austin arrived in the Rattler, and some days afterwards General Godwin, as commander-in-chief, with twelve of the company steamers, which had nearly six thousand troops on board. Our first work was to take Martaban. The steamers, running close into the city, discharged broadside after broadside, our fire being returned with considerable spirit. 
but the enemy's guns being silenced, the troops were landed, and the Burmese, not liking the glitter of their bayonets, took to their heels in all directions, we having completely knocked to pieces all their defenses. Leaving a garrison at Martaban, we proceeded to Rangoon, which had not given in. The fleet, therefore, took up a position before it, and began in earnest firing away shot and shell into the batteries for the best part of the day. We soon knocked the enemy's outer stockades to pieces, and set them on fire. But, to do the Burmese justice, they fought as obstinately as bulldog. So we sent the naval brigade on shore to help the troops. For three days, the fighting continued. Stockade after stockade was stormed and taken in gallant style. Still, the enemy retained possession of the city and the great pagoda. On the third day, a grand attack was made on it by all the troops and the naval brigade, and, after some pretty sharp fighting, it fell into our hands, though we lost several officers killed and wounded. We next attacked Basim, where the Burmese fought with a good deal of bravery, defending themselves in the great pagoda of the city. Again, the naval brigade showed what they were made of. Having landed with a party of troops, they stormed the great pagoda, into which a large body of the enemy had thrown themselves. But the place was gallantly taken, though not without some loss on our side. Meantime, we heard that Martaban, which had been left with a very small garrison, had been attacked by the Burmese. We were hurrying back to the assistance of our friends, when we received intelligence that Major Hall, who had been left there in command, had driven off the enemy. We had made pretty sharp work of it already, but there were other and more important places up the river to be taken. Orders were, therefore, received to send a squadron of man-of-war's boats to accompany the Phlegathon, carrying between two and three hundred soldiers and about a hundred blue jackets, and I had the luck to go with them. Leaving Rangoon, the Phlegathon steamed away with the boats in tow, like a comet with its tail out. We came near Pegu when we found ourselves under a hot fire from the Burmese on the top of the high banks. As we were unable to fire in return from the boats, a strong party was landed under the command of Captain Tarleton. The Burmese were driven from point to point till they took shelter within the walls of the city, when they began firing away pretty warmly with their jingles and musket. As the enemy's shot were flying somewhat thickly about us, it would never have done to halt. Captain Tarleton, therefore, having found a native who, for a bribe, undertook to show the way, pushed on along the causeway till the city ditch was reached. Here it was seen that, on one side of the gateway, part of the wall had tumbled down. Halting for an instant to gain breath, Captain Tarleton, singing out, on, my lads. Away all hands dashed right up to the wall, and, scrambling over it like cats, jumped down inside to the great astonishment of the enemy, who, not liking their looks, fled for shelter within their great pagoda. For these fellows always seemed to think that their temples were the safest places. The boats had, in the meantime, been attacked, but were bravely defended and the troops, pushing on, soon made their way unexpectedly into the city. Before the Burmese were aware of what we were about, we stormed the great pagoda, which we soon carried, and the city was ours, with the loss of one man killed and three wounded. 
After blowing up the fortifications, as we had not troops enough to hold the place, we returned to Rangoon. After this, we had a good deal of footwork, cruising along the banks of the rivers and dislodging the enemy, who often appeared in some force for the purpose of trying to stop the provision boats which came down to supply the fleet with grub. Sometimes we landed and drove the fellows far away into the country. Although they were ready enough to fire at us from a distance, they never liked the look of our whiskers. Whereat, there was a general laugh. Whose whiskers, Tom? asked Archie. Well, those of the soldiers in blue jackets, of course, said Tom. How could they tell that I hadn't a pair, too? Well, go on, Rogers, cried several voices. What did you do next? There was another large place, he resumed, called Prome, high up the river, which it was considered important to take, as it formed the chief defense of the capital. Captain Tarleton was, therefore, ordered to proceed up the Irrawaddy in the Medusa, with three other steamers, of one of which my brother Jack had the command. Away we steamed for some distance, without any of the enemy daring to show their faces. We had, as you will understand, already put them all to flight. At length, at a place with a precious hard name, Conagee, about twenty-five miles below Prome, we came in sight of a large body of men collected on the banks. We threw a shell into their midst as a hint to them to be off, instead of which they began firing away at us with musketry and several heavy guns. We returned the compliment pretty briskly, till they, getting the worst of it, as usual, showed their discretion by scampering off and not stopping till they thought our shot would not reach them. As we were in a hurry to be at Prome, we didn't stop till they came back, but steamed on till sunset, when we anchored off the town of Miao. We found that the river divided just ahead of us into two streams, the western and deepest being the only navigable channel for the greater part of the year. We had arrived, however, at a time when the eastern channel had plenty of water in it, as we learned from the pilots. This was a fortunate circumstance, as you shall hear. When we got near the western channel, we found an immensely strong fort at the end of a range of hills which completely overlooked the river, garrisoned by a force of not less than 10,000 men under a certain General Bandula, the most celebrated warrior in the Burmese army, so the pilots told us. Though his troops were only armed with matchlocks and might have been bad shots, they would have committed a good deal of mischief by peppering down on our decks, not to speak of what the heavy guns might have done, placed in a position to rake us as we steamed up. Had it been necessary, I have no doubt Captain Tarleton would have stood on, but as there was no object in running the risk if it could be avoided, just as we came close to the works and the enemy had begun to pepper us, he put his helm to port and greatly to their disappointment steered away up the eastern channel, where not one of their shot could reach us. We kept the lead going, every moment fearing that we might get aground, when we should have been somewhat in a mess. We never had less than two fathoms of water, and sometimes more, so that we got through without accident, and by steaming on all night, the next morning at daylight, came off prone. At the south end of the city, we made out four heavy guns, but the troops, every man jack of them, had gone off with General Bandula and left not one behind to fight them. We therefore brought up abreast of the spot and hold them off, spiking the iron guns 
and carrying the brass ones on board, 23 in all. Higher up, we found between 20 and 30 more. This done, we again got up steam and paddled 10 miles higher. We were now within four days steam of Ava, with a broad, deep river, easy of navigation before us. We all hoped that the Commodore would push on and capture the capital. As far as we saw, there was nothing to prevent him, but the orders he had received were simply to survey the river as high as Prome and then to return. So, of course, he had to obey them. Why he had not been given discretionary powers to proceed farther, I don't know. A golden opportunity was lost of catching the King of Ava by the nose, for we had so nimbly doubled on old Bandula that the chances were we should not have met the slightest opposition. You may fancy, therefore, that our disappointment when the order was received to bout ship and run down the stream again, but it couldn't be helped. Orders are orders. It wasn't the fault of our gallant Commodore. After holding prone four and twenty hours, we evacuated the town and soon got back into the shallow channel up which we had come. On getting into the main stream, we caught sight of General Bandula's army, some of the troops on shore, some in boats crossing the river, evidently with the intention of following us along the banks. I don't suppose they much liked our looks, for they evidently didn't expect to see us so soon. Steaming on, we quickly got up to them, and opened with shot and shell, both on the boats and on the dark-skinned troops which, crowded together, covered the shore. You may fancy what fearful havoc and confusion our shells created among the masses of human beings. Many of the boats were sunk, and the people in the others, finding escape impossible, hauled down their flags, and made signs that they surrendered. It was calculated that we captured or sunk forty or fifty boats. Among them was the old general state barge and several large war canoes. On board them were found loot of all sorts, with two gold umbrellas and a standard. It was some consolation to have these trophies to exhibit, and as soon as we got back, the commander-in-chief, who, I dare say, was somewhat vexed at not having beforehand told our commodore that he was to do as he thought best, ordered us to go back again with a large body of troops and to take possession of Prome. And as soon as we got ready, away we steamed, and, the river being still full, quickly reached our destination. There was not much fight in old General Bandula after all. One reason was that we had carried off all his heavy guns. After battering the city, the troops were thrown on shore, and though the Burmese stood their ground for a short time, they quickly turned tail, and we entered the city in triumph, without a single man killed and only four wounded. As we left Pegu without any defenders, though the inhabitants had taken a strong liking to us, while we were away, a pretty large Burmese army marched into the place and began fortifying it. We had therefore to attack it again. Perhaps our chiefs thought that there wouldn't otherwise be work enough, and so left the cities we took unguarded. We proceeded up the river, and during the night came off the place. At daybreak, during a thick fog, with as little noise as possible, a body of troops and another of blue jackets were landed, and we making a dash on the town, the Burmese, who had no notion we were at hand, were completely taken by surprise, and away they scampered as hard as their legs could carry them, as usual, to the pagoda, just as rats do to their holes. 
Whether from being a sort of sacred place, they fancied that it was safer than any other spot, I don't know. At all events, it was more easily defended. We, however, did not allow them to hold it long, though they fought desperately. Our troops, making a rush, dashed into the place and drove them out, not, however, without some considerable loss, half a dozen of our men being killed and more than thirty wounded. We had now got hold of all their chief cities except Ava, and why that was not taken is more than I can say. We might certainly have captured it, with the king, his white elephant, and all his lords and ladies together, not to speak of his treasure, which would have given us something handsome in the way of prize money. Perhaps it was thought best not to drive him to desperation, as we had already punished him, or rather, his unfortunate subjects, pretty severely. We had still no end of expeditions on shore. One, especially, turned out most disastrously. The government of Burma, fancying that we had now become pretty quiet and that they could drive us into the sea, allowed a number of guerrilla bands to be organized, which scoured the country in all directions and mercilessly robbed the unfortunate people. Among the most noted of the leaders was a fellow called Maya Toon. After burning down a number of villages and committing all sorts of mischief, he threw himself into a stronghold about 25 miles inland from Rangoon, or rather from a place called Donabue on the river. A force of about 600 men was ordered to get ready to attack the daring chieftain. About half were soldiers, the remainder seamen and marines with their officers. Jack and I had the luck to be chosen, and we expected to see something of a new style of fighting and to enjoy a tramp of 20 miles or more through the country. The expedition was placed under the command of Captain Locke, whom we all knew to be as good an officer as any in the service. We carried with us two three-pound field guns, and on reaching Donabue, landed, and began our march without encountering an enemy. We were fortunate enough to get hold of some natives who were willing to act as our guides, for you will understand that the natives everywhere were friendly to the English and the troops only were our enemies. We started early on the 3rd of February, the natives drawing our guns along the pathway, which lay through a thick jungle of tall trees and brushwood. It was not the pleasantest style of country to traverse, seeing that a tiger might spring out and carry off a fellow, and that the enemy, if they had had the wits to do it, might have placed an ambush and shot us down without our being able to see one of them. However, after marching about 15 miles, we arrived at an open valley where we bivouacked. We could hear the enemy all night long popping away ahead of us pretty smartly. I suppose it was under the idea they should frighten us barbarians and prevent our advancing. However, in that they were mistaken. We lighted our fires and cooked our suppers, and pretty hungry we were. We then lay down to sleep, thinking of the work before us on the morrow and we were, of course, all very jolly, expecting to get hold of Mr. Mayatune and to carry him back with us in triumph. Little did many of the poor fellows who lay down that night suppose that it was to be their last on earth. The bugle sounded at daybreak, and springing up, we breakfasted and recommenced our march, moving along in the same sort of path as before, till it suddenly terminated on the side of a broad nella, a sort of natural ditch. The bank on the opposite side was much higher than the ground we stood on, 
and we soon saw that it was strongly fortified after the Burmese fashion, with sharp-pointed bamboos, over which it was as difficult to leap as it was to force our way through. The path, too, was here narrowed by an abatis of the same sharp-pointed bamboos, which made it impossible to deploy the whole strength of our column. Indeed, our advance guard, consisting of seamen and marines, could only march two abreast, while our two guns, hauled along by the natives, were in the rear. Suddenly, as we were looking about us and thinking what a nasty sort of place it was, we found ourselves exposed to a tremendous fire from a horde of banditti, who had hitherto been concealed behind a breastwork on the opposite bank. A gallant officer of the Fox, Lieutenant Candy, who commanded the advance guard of the Blue Jackets, and Captain Price of the Bengal Infantry, led on their men in the most dashing style, intending to force their way across the Nulla and to storm the breastworks. Before they had gone many paces, they were both shot dead, as were many of their followers. Captain Locke now hurried to the front, and led another party to the attack. It got some way across, when so murderous was the fire that he was compelled to retreat, leaving a number of men behind who had been killed close to him. Still undaunted, he again made the attempt, and a second time was driven back. We must take the place, he shouted out, and a third time, rallying the seamen and marines, he rushed forward, sword in hand, determined to capture the fort. The Burmese must have had their marksmen, for one after the other, our officers were struck. This time, everybody thought he would succeed when, as he was advancing, a fellow who had climbed up a tree overlooking the Nella fired at him and wounded him desperately, driving his watch right into his body. Though he suspected that the wound was mortal, he had strength sufficient to fall back to the rear when Commander Lambert, the son of the Commodore, took his place. Though our men were falling thickly around, two more attempts were made to get across that horrible nulla. Commander Lambert, who had himself received four shots through his clothes, though he had escaped unhurt, seeing that success was impossible, as more than half our party had been killed and wounded, at length ordered us to fall back. I had not thought about myself, but I thought about my brother Jack a great deal and I was thankful to see him get off clear without a wound. The enemy kept firing at us as we retreated, but their shot did not commit much damage after we had got to a little distance. One bad part of the business was that we were obliged to leave the dead on the field, for our rascally duly bearers and guides had treacherously decamped, and we had scarcely men enough remaining to carry the wounded. The seamen undertook this duty while the Bengal infantry, in a very gallant way for which we were heartily obliged to them, covered our retreat. The only road that we could possibly take was the one we had come by. The jungle on each side was so thick that we could not force our way through it. Happily, for the same reason, I suppose, the enemy did not get round and meet us in front. They followed, but were afraid to advance near enough to molest us the soldiers' rifles reaching farther than their jingles or Birmingham muskets. We all felt very downcast at the loss we had sustained, but more especially for that of our brave leader, Captain Locke. He was still alive, but the surgeon gave us no hopes that he would recover. The heat was tremendous, 
the sun burning down on our heads, while we hadn't a drop of water, and the men had to carry our leader and the rest of the wounded for nearly twenty miles. Still, all hands did their best to keep up their courage and discipline, the strongest helping, as far as they could, the weakest. Four or five of our officers, who were themselves wounded, setting the rest an example. Thankfully enough were we when we caught sight of the river after a march of twelve hours and found ourselves at length seated in the boats, the troops being embarked on board the Phlegathon. Shoving off, we made our way back to Rangoon, and the next day we heard that Captain Locke had expired within two days after he had received his wound. We agreed that it was a very sad affair, and it would have been better had we tried to catch the robber and his band while they were out foraging. We buried Captain Locke on shore near the Great Dakota at Rangoon, and I am sure I never joined in a sadder procession than we formed, as, shoving off, we followed the coffin of our late gallant chief on shore and marched to the neighborhood of the Great Pagoda. He was buried with all the honor we could show. The robber, Mayatun, held out for some time longer, till a considerable force under Sir John Chief was sent against his stronghold. Even then he showed much pluck, and was not dislodged till several officers and men on our side had fallen. This was just before the King of Ava knocked under and sued for peace, giving up the province of Pegu, which was accordingly attached to the British dominions. The soldiers had most of the fighting, but we had a good share of it. Quorum pars magna fui, and so ends my yarn. Bravo, Rogers, an excellent yarn, and capitally told, said several voices. He didna pit your light under a bushel, laddie, remarked Archie. Why should I, exclaimed Tom. It was for your sakes more than for mine. You wouldn't have been half as interested if I'd only told you what I'd heard, whereas I've enabled you, in imagination, to take part in all the scenes in which my brother Jack and I were engaged. Then you should have said, Quorum pars magna fuit frater Jackus meus, said Archie. But I suspect he was the principal actor. Of course he was, said Tom. There's not another fellow in the world like my brother Jack. I always said so before I came to sea, and now I have been with him so long, I can say it from my own observation. I might have said a great deal more about him, only my object was to be brief. Others of the Ross youngsters who had been in the expedition corroborated all that had been said, and made Tom's hearers wish to have the chance of sailing with Jack Rogers, who was sure, they agreed, wherever he might be, to cut out work of some sort or other. War yarns were spun, and many a song sung, before Tom and his shipmates returned to the brig. Next morning, as the corvette was weighing anchor, the frigate was seen coming in from the southward. The opal, accordingly, again brought up and waited for her arrival. As she came to an anchor, the flags run up to her masthead, summoned Murray on board. The Commodore, on hearing of the number of slaves he had taken, ordered him, instead of going on to Aden, to proceed to Seychelles, where arrangements had been made for the reception of liberated Africans, and, as soon as he had landed them and refreshed his ship's company, to return to the coast, and prosecute his search for slavers. We must strike a blow at this abominable traffic, and put it down at all cost, exclaimed the Commodore. We have done nothing effectual as yet, but one vessel captured, fifty have escaped. 
The Commodore, having come on board the Opal to inspect the slaves, ordered Murray to get underway immediately. The Corvette, running out round the north end of the island, hauled her wind and stood eastward till she reached Seychelles. A lookout was still kept for slavers which, having hugged the Madagascar shore, might be steering for the Gulf of Persia. All hands, from the commander downwards, were eager to arrive at their destination and to land their cargo of blacks. Everything possible was done to keep the poor creatures in health, but notwithstanding this, several died on the voyage every day. Part of the deck was cleared, and they were encouraged to dance and sing, and amuse themselves after their own fashion. At first, when they stood up, they appeared scarcely able to move, but in a short time, their spirits rising, they began to snap their fingers, bend their bodies, and shuffle round and round, then to clap their hands and shout and laugh, as if all thoughts of the miseries they had suffered had vanished. To the intense satisfaction of all on board, the corvette at length, just as the sun was setting, came in sight across the purple ocean of the green, foliage-clad islands, in a setting of white sand, surrounded by coral reefs, amid which she had carefully to pick her way. At some distance rose the lofty mountains of the principal island of Moth, while on either hand were tree-fringed islets, backed by others far off, blue and indistinct. The pilot, coming off, brought the ship to an anchorage a considerable distance from the town. Anxious as Murray was to get the slaves on shore, it was impossible to do so that night. Next morning, the disembarkation commenced. Those who wished it were allowed to engage themselves, either as domestic or agricultural servants, to the inhabitants, while the rest were placed on an island where they might erect huts and cultivate the ground for their own advantage. Pango and Bango had their choice of landing or remaining on board, but they preferred continuing in the ship among the crew, whose good will they had secured by their good humor and willingness to oblige. All hands luxuriated in the endless variety of fruits brought off by the boats which were quickly alongside. Oranges, plantains, bananas, alligator pears, limes, pineapples, and numberless others, including the breadfruit, and on going on shore, as some compensation for the horrible odors they had lately inhaled, they enjoyed the scent of the countless beautiful flowers which grew not only in every garden, but lined the roadside and covered the slopes of the hills. Though the islands belonged to England, nearly all the inhabitants appeared to be French, and French was everywhere spoken. Mr. Mildmay, the only officer who professed to care much for society, was sadly disappointed on finding that there were no ladies in the place. He therefore, in some stanzas which he wrote, described it as a paradise without an eve. The great drawback to the place was the heat, for behind the town rises a precipice upwards of 7,000 feet in height, which effectually shuts out the breeze except from one quarter. The summit, however, being covered by luxuriant vegetation, adds another beautiful feature to the scenery of the island. End of section 10